It is so humbling to be here and to have been invited here um, and to be trusted with having anything to say <laughs> to people. Um, so I appreciate um, that gift. And um, I appreciate all the conversations I've had with everyone so far. Um, everyone's been incredibly generous. And thank you for taking such good care of me also. Um, I um, struggle a lot with how much to say about the poems before I read. So I'm going to describe actually a little bit just the arc of the reading, and then I'm going to try not to actually interpolate too much between the poems. Um, though that often makes them more accessible, it also often robs them of certain kinds of mystery um, and difficulty in entering, which I think sometimes are actually essential to poetry's kind of weirdness, um, which I celebrate. Um, so. Essentially, that I'm going to begin with reading from a book called Sightmap, and then end with a, a more recent poem. And basically, I will remain metaphysical and obsessed with questions of embodiment and what it means to be a material being on this planet. But I will move from a more Christian Gnostic purview in the earlier poems to a much um, um, less dualistic vision of things at the end. Um, and I decided to start with the poems I'm going to start with because um, Ryan pointed me on a walk and I realized I was in birch country again. Um, and I, um, first time I lived in New Hampshire, um, I had never seen birches before actually in my life and th I became obsessed with them. So the first three poems I'm going to read are all uh, subtitled uh, White Birch. Yeah, I think that's, I'll try and keep that to about all I'm going to say. Embodiment, white birch. How a birch, birch shirks its skins, strange. Grain of the language of prayer to disturb. Words addressed to where God is, is what writing is. Alphabet alive beneath the alphabet so far into whiteness. Each mind to itself creation come crawling, matter out of nothing, always. Longing inquires at the threshold a question unanswered, not skin but the look of skin. What once overheard the talk of God became matter. Ask the birch, did the soul have a choice? Theory of trees, which is actually a phrase from Gerard Manley Hopkins' notebook. He doesn't give you a theory of trees. He just says that there might be one. Theory of trees, white birch. If narrow, if limbs, white also, are given skin cousin to paper, must thought be brought closer, be invested, mind clothed, holy in action, writing, my companion, color, my paper, dress, a warring, of time, garment of spar spent in rending, 
embodiment, awful, beautiful, never lasting. Is form home if form gives damage hospice? Who was I? Whose limbs were mine when error entered flesh? And this poem's called Spirit Photograph. And it's dedicated to a friend of mine who was making contemporary spirit photographs. And I would stand outside of the frame of the photograph and blow cigarette smoke into the frame. Uh, it was real smoke. <laughs> spirit photograph, white birch. It was you who brought rhetoric to the tree, fallacies, five kinds of pain. Argument, traveler, carries you where? First was whiteness borrowed from light. Second, a skin, holy incident, whose only home is being looked at. It isn't beauty, it's second name paper, third or fourth, pinkish underskin scored with short parallels, like prayer is made to no order or a god not present at the creation of longing. Tearing back the bark, you made there a fire to heat the sentence until meaning relented. Ash, the syntax, ash, the fifth, you lent it, which is metaphor which is nomenclature, bark backward curling as if you knew words from damage. If only it had been real fire you stole from the dictionary of agony of five kinds, the sixth is not knowing the difference. And then the last poem I'll read from this book is called Long After Hopkins. As you can probably already hear, he was my first poetry crush and remains my biggest poetry crush. Um, and one of the things I've always admired about him is that he sees inside of the visible world um, a structure, i.e. God, a Christian God. Um, and I never really was able to quite have that certainty. Long after Hopkins. Nothing at dusk lured but dust and rode to keep it. The field kneels under white pines, umbra the edge to whom this is addressed, a mind part fern, part birch. Two turkeys slowly essing their necks through inflorescence, arrangement more precise than what light leaves fields. Painterly flowers, more color than picture, more words for color than tint. Alizarin or violet, you could write goldenrod, write cornflower, but Queen Anne's lace still hems the low horizon. Faith, what is it, abides, what's left of pastoral but unreality? Ask artifice, ask ornament, go ahead and ask, what principle animates the natural? Owl, pink lady slipper, orchid, white-tailed deer woodchuck. Is it only what's visible that's knowable? Twenty dandelions gone to seed, tent worms slung in the articulated tree. What's tiresome? Mind, 
unanswered, writing to supply scaffolds to hold up scenery, nothing but queries and plywood, string strung to a high-struck bell auguring. It's too late to see a third turkey left headless, wreck of feathers, the owl scared, scattered in grass. And I'm continuing the angst in New England theme. Um, the second time I lived in New Hampshire, I wrote a series of poems called Transcendental Grammar Crown. And I'm going to read from the uh, six po poems from the middle of the sonnet cycle. It's not your mama's sonnet cycle, so um, it acts funny. And um, like sort of the way I got around some of the rules of the crown were making titles out of the last lines. So I'm beginning with a poem for Emily Dickinson, because it's all about transcendentalists and, and American Renaissance writers. Our mouth is not mind, Emily Dickinson. You will never forgive us, for we never visit. Sick, with God-longing, livid, Fever, reeling, bestial, need sends us on all fours in the field where heat ends mid-stem. Spectrum's very heaven boils above, hawkweed and bird's foot, trefoil and a royal of inflorescence. Doubt, a terrible field to live in, whose laws are made by a god without cause or qualities. Were we to cry out, Lord, our voice, the wrong season for milkweed, it's the only thing to come home to is what scatters, what's always going away. Uh, this poem is called What's, and its subtitle is Dickinson's Dash. And it has a word in it called plate, um, P-L-A-I-T, which is like braiding. If you think of the plate plate, it doesn't work, <laughs> which is why I say it. What's? A saint is slant to pain. Storm, norm, numb, null. Thorn pressed to thumb. As weight is pains, time's plate. In all's stall, what becomes of becoming? Fear, nadir of feeling. Of feeling for the sonnet. No monument, no moment, no human passion, just spider's fiber, cantilevered thing, hedged best guess, a net to register the transparency identity that comes, its minimal matter, fragile. And then what? Plaint and wait, as if your whole life a pattern of spectacular aptitude for disappointment, your intelligence, a broken wing, a bird feigns to distract the hunt from kill. It's useless to reduce gesture further, dear form, 
Are you reason? Are you even feeling? Fail better. Fail better. And this is for Thoreau. And I was living in front of a field, so that's why the field keeps appearing. And this is where it gets taken down. Solstice brings the field to its knees. Yarrow, flatch, vetch, heavy, estival air, a gall, a pollen. And aren't you novice again in lit Euclidean guilt shadows to true each natural fact toward more radical matter? A robe of rhetoric, auric eulalia. To angle praise, fodder the color of how you felt as a child, pure Bible light, ochre smoke and ivory, vellum pages, cut stems, sweet. Taller now than grass, you can't but muster nothing. Longing a rope you'd use to haul it all otherwise. Otherwise, grass's parable. To have been built bent, to bear witness, to have been thin-stemmed, spined like a mind, to have said, it's true, we saw the grasses, turned snake, flesh, fall crept cribs of cryptic ribs. We wished it was a dream, but the fields went weird and left. Was it a dream? At forest's edge, we watched dark arc over the fields, how trees begin to lean at that hour over their own shadows, and the voice called the grasses back by name. Timothy, bent, orchard, hair, poverty, sweet vernal, come. And the last poem I'll read from Companion Grasses is a bit longer and very different. The last two things I promised people earlier, the last two things I read are more narrative. So those of you who are craving that little hit of story, you're going to get it. Uh, so this poem is called Star Thistle. And it is uh, dedicated to my friend, uh, the poet Reginald Shepard who died um, September 10th, 2008. And this features another field, but, and this is important, uh, I fall in love with fields the way people fall in love with people. Um, and this one, though, is in Northern California, uh, on a mountain above Napa Valley. Star Thistle. He died in lamplight. That night brought out against fog its grid of gambits. Each street a perfect winter dissembled. Pure effect after that. Anything outside all scumble. Marine layer a low hover that suffered dwelling to disappear into weather. Facade a slow fade into gradient. His death felt like that. 
to unlock and open the front door onto a lost element, looking for purchase, to find a vanishing inside a home where once there'd been rooms and no humus into which to inter his memory, no image. From 50 miles away, a thousand feet below the field I love, I tried to remember how spring undoes the year like a knot. How winter haze, flat, thin cover turns gold, gray beneath rain, keeps close to ground the germinal heat. How grasses thread up through the remainder of what sowed them and help break it down. All spring, following his death, I turned in thought to pale green, stems infiltrating the annual weave of leavings, each seed a knot in the energy net flung out over the field so the caught space can blossom. June 4th, I board the ferry in time to see spring end on Atlas Peak, grasses turning again to seed. Each stem an eidolon of itself, brittle inflorescences shattering in my wake. I leave the cabin each afternoon for the field's edge to sit and watch what I can't see work the surface. Wind, which I've never cared for in particular, cares only for particulars. This rachis, this spikelet, these lodicules, nothing too miniature to be seized by a shaking, neither grief nor fear, and far more complete. Day as I close my eyes, I hear the smallest ocean, smallest surf break beneath my feet, a pile of gold seeds that rattles the dust. After 14 years of living with HIV and the side effects of protease inhibitors, after persistent misdiagnosed abdominal pain turned out to be colon cancer that spread to his liver, after the removal of the tumor in the majority of his colon, after chemotherapies, nausea, and neuropathy, after a perforated abdomen led to a heart attack following three surgeries and a seizure after the second surgery, after severe peritonitis and a very bad case of blood poisoning that almost killed him, Reginald died. His final letter to me ending, as always, take good care, my friend. A gesture. I leave the field to hike up the trail thick with wildflowers. Less vetch this year, but plenty of mariposa lilies. All the flowers bountiful until halfway to the ridge. I enter another field of a liminal tint, blue-green, stems covered in pale hair, thousands still tender, but others older, each branch ending in a bright ball of spikes, soon to bloom. Yellow star thistle, non-native invasive, particularly noxious to grazing animals. Each year the thistle spreads farther down trail. Each year each plant bears one to a thousand seed heads, each seed head holding as many as 80 seeds, the life of one plant, easily leaving 100 behind. Knowing nothing I do will help. I pull up a hundred young plants each time I pass the first field of them. I grip each stem low to ensure I get the long, ingenious taproot that even during drought reaches water, and my forearms blister where they're pricked by lateral spines. It might be bad morning to want the thistle gone, but I go on hating it. It seems an uncanny design ensures its slow destruction of an ecosystem. It chokes out healthy grassland flora, even kills grazing animals that might control its spread. 
Uncanny, it survives drought and thrives off wildfire both. Just a pretty plant, holistic in its grip of a habitat, the thistle is not metaphor and extends into the future as far as I can see, easily filling the field I love. At its edge, I stand, my skin, a stipple of blisters. Something startles me where I thought I was safest, Whitman says. Now I am terrified at the earth. It is that calm and patient as it undoes itself, undoing that toughens to give way relentlessly to nothing but its own propagation. The earth undoes itself as each life undoes itself, and to what end is what terrifies me after the hike. I try with salve to soothe the blisters that deepen and weep weird, clear, fluid. The day before Reginald died, we spoke on the phone, but morphine filled his speech so completely it was terrible to listen to him disappearing, even as he said, I love you, and I echoed him the last thing I could bear before I had to say goodbye, filled with the certainty I'd failed to witness the death of a friend I'd loved. Good morning accepts transience. Sure, it makes sense in the field I love, where I see next year already on the stem. Sun draws inflorescences taut, and wind separates what's left into seed and chaff. But I was raised to believe in a personal God attending a death whose final horizon is eternity, an ideal persistent as the star thistle seed carried to California by contaminated feed in the 1850s, whose progeny covers 12 to 15 million acres currently. What chemistry, as Whitman would say, it is that calm and patient. And though the thistle isn't metaphor, I find myself kneeling reading the lowest field again, and I become everything about root giving up ground, the groan it grudges as it eases up, out, the subtle scent of the flower that when eaten by horses causes brain lesions, and mycosal mouth ulcers that lead to eventual death by starvation and dehydration, and when eaten by bees makes exceptional honey, heavily fragrant and strangely dark, almost gray. Two weeks before we spoke, Reginald in the hospital wrote his last poem, God with us, ending it, how I want to believe, a pearl, an irritant. It's one thing to want to believe, to live by building a mind on the fault between faith and doubt. It's another to believe the longing for belief, an attack a distrust of immersion in the material given us as habit and habitat. No possible rush of friendship for stones, grasses, and humus, as if the human were over, and the wild deer in us were released at last, at dusk to disappear into the stand of Manzanita far across the field I love. If we die to become nothing but matter so that being itself might continue, grounded by ground itself, such a sweet thing out of such corruptions, who wouldn't wish to linger in the material world that won't spare me or let me hold a living hand to him? I'll spring, I'll return to bring grief to the field, always one root I can't pull out entire. As above, so below. 
from star down to thistle, it's all the same. So firm in the ground, today it breaks in my hand. Bad morning that this summer flowers, the life only destruction makes possible. And I will um, close with a poem more uh, intimately connected to the talk that I gave. Um, for me, ecopoetics has been a process and a set of questions rather than a set of certainties. Um, so my work has obviously changed a lot over time. Um, and this is very different. Uh, it is called Clearwater Ringa, and it is actually written in five, seven, or in the actual form, syllabic form for 12 pages. So just think of how awesome that is while you're, and how long it took me to write it. Five years. And then Kenyon Review published it, and I felt vindicated for like all of the endless, finicky, insane labor that went into this poem. Okay. Clearwater Ringa. Fog, error, radar, failed. The container ship hit the bridge tower hard. Its hull split, lost 58,000 gallons of bunker fuel oil, November 7th, 2007. The next day it hurt the eyes to walk dockside, wind bringing the sting of petrol. Each of its pilings ringed with rainbow. From the pier, I watched white boats go, carrying yellow booms. Saw how the reel absorbs a fact. The way a seabird preens its greased wings helplessly. The ordinary gesture gently carrying toxins from feather to beak, from outside to in. It was the first disaster I could walk to look at until it seemed ceased to seem exceptional, no matter the panic I felt watching an oiled western grebe thrash against capture, no matter the bird slipping in the small plastic tub slicked by its own feathers, its rescuer trying to contain it without injury. Easier to watch rescuers soak the bird in warm water, dawn, dish soap, easier to watch them scrape each feather clean with a kid's toothbrush. Yet, I couldn't get over it. How the reel couldn't refuse, could do nothing but disperse tarball, sheen, and slick from the central bay on currents west through the gate. The entire coast from Marin to Pacifica to the Farallones immersed in the reel it was and was part of. And didn't my mind likewise link each image in its archive of disaster, stash each fact in evidence of an attachment to events I neither forget nor understand? For five years, I've kept newspaper clippings and old emails, kept the photo of an oiled surf scoter in the hands of a panicked passersby, Megan McNertney who tried, untrained, to save it, barehanded, its smeared feathers flat black, wet as its eye eyeing the camera. I've kept some numbers, 7,000 birds dead, 200 miles of coastline coded, $44.4 million paid by fleet management owners of the Costco Busan wreck, 
I've kept track of herring spawn exposed to fuel oil, how sunlight creates phototoxic conditions, crippling embryonic fish, how herring haven't returned to breeding grounds first polluted by the spill. And I've kept track of other disasters that came up close. The Summit Fire May 2008, when the Santa Cruz Mountains lost 4,000 acres in six days, and then again the next year in August when the Lockheed Fire burned nearly 8,000 acres in 11 days. I can't remember which turned the city sky orange, sunlight fat with ash that stuck to our windowsills, how weird hot wind was evidence of how crisis becomes most real through firsthand fact. The war had been on all those years, but not so close I could walk to it, its ash staining my snot black. Meaning, I think, the local real made me begin to experience the mind as a form porous, as mile after mile of trees accepting fire, to begin to see aftermath as the start of thought, the way some conifers need extreme heat to unseal seeds locked in the resinous bracts of cones, Monterey, Knobcone, and Bishop pines, born natives of flame. But I couldn't get over it. The endless capacity of the real for fact, how it seemed to have at core endless hollowness. My mind can never mimic, given its capacity for reaction, how the real would accept anything. But when I looked up, ash abandoned itself to particulate scatter. And at last, I knew I was afraid a raptor's accurate shadow falling over me, always premonitory. I go north to Marin, miles from any city limit, to land protected by law, to walk, to outpace panic, as if my mind could give like the barbed wire fence I lift and slip under at Tamales Bay. Pierce Point Road rides out over hills dry in July, high fire, danger day, grasses, a gold nerve pricked by thistle. Those scenic views line the road, the surrounded sky without horizon, silver, vague sun haze, visions, discursive limit. Mostly, I want to live there. At the precise site, mine stops its blameless languaging job. As if there the real stops burning, oil its gush from the uncapped well. No, it's July 2010. I've spent weeks watching YouTube footage of a flight over BP's Deepwater Horizon oil spill. John L. Wathen, Tom Hutchins, and David Helvarg took off on June 21st from Gulf Shores, Alabama, five hours due south of my hometown. It didn't take long to find our first oil. In the mouth of Mobile Bay, there were scattered patches of light sheen behind the islands. Dauphin Island, the one I know from summer road trips years before Gulf Barrier Islands lost landmass and wildlife habitat to Katrina. Footage shows just 1.2 miles off Gulf Shores, there was a solid mass of oil. On previous flights behind Petty Boy Island, all we'd seen was light sheen. Now it was turning to darker pink mats, some miles long and hundreds of feet wide. 
All day as I walk out to Tamale's point and back, the soft, warm water, distance in crisis, churns, turns the Pacific, the Pacific strange. White sun blanking the waves, but for white caps shattering in spindrift, and the gulf keeps burning. Water on fire, the purest endgame, obvious allegory, like some revelations plague. Chapter 8, verse 10. After the first and second angels, what soul could watch the third bear its trumpet and not fear the imminent music, the song meant to call a star down to earth, to fall bitterness on a third of the rivers and the springs of the waters and turn the waters to wormwood? I ask you, who could watch and not fear? Though I couldn't, I can walk due north into wind. I can walk south, bright lupine opening its sweet furred purse of bees. I can stop where gusts rip through windy gap and watch the hawks, wings rigid, ride zephyrs so fierce it takes strength to go nowhere. I can stop, admire how the cobweb thistle winds a bobbin's worth of white silk through red-tipped spikes, but I can't forget to rewind the crisis, to pause the footage where the plane spots a pod of dolphins, each back streaked with sheen. I can't forget Coast Guard planes have been sent over the coast to spray Corexit at night. A dispersant BP thought would ease the cleanup, but instead bonds with oil to create toxins that move oil through skin, rupture red blood cells, thereby causing internal bleeding and indefinite headaches in men and women working on and in the Gulf. I can't forget how poison is nature's second nature now how the real seems dependent on this paradox in our manner of dwelling. Everywhere we live, we destroy life. I could walk north all my years and never not stand right on ruin. Coast Miwok once lived here seasonally, last sum late summer's peak run, drawing them toward ocean. Centuries walking inland, then back out to shore. Centuries hunting mule deer, then salmon, ruin. Uncalendared, the walking ritual, the hunts sacred to and fro. Most of the tribe by 1880, sick, dead, converted, or assimilated, just 68 members left. By that time, the Pierces owned Tomales Point. Their barns emptied only 40 years ago, after 100 spent dairy ranching, extirpated native herds of tule elk. Their cows grazed new European feed grass, not native prairie. Though after the ranch closed, elk were reintroduced, prairie can't come back without decades of heavy management. Meanwhile, the herd numbers over 400. Perhaps to dwell in the real is this doubleness. Tule elk eating non-native rye and clover that nourish cattle, but out-competed native brome, ruin and habitat, host recombinant, a helical form with no dialectical reversal from one view to the other. We don't have to reassemble them into a synthesis. They are two aspects of the reversibility, which is the ultimate truth, Heidegger argues, sounding a lot like my friend Martha, writing from coastal Louisiana, June 10th. 
After some time home, it's clear the drilling moratorium's no good. The economy will collapse, stranding people and undercutting support for alternative energy research. Nothing moves forward as long as green energy and oil are antagonists. These folks have worked to feed us for years. To abandon them is not right. For years, I've walked as far as it takes to walk past thought into what may be called image, non-discursive. I spend hours so empty my mind's the ranch barn open both ends to wind. Nothing but old hay stirring in the stalls. It used to seem indulgent to vanish outward into the texture of elk fur on the hills of white gulch, two-toned velvet gold, then brown, brushed against brighter, brittle grasses. But even when mortals turn inward, taking stock of themselves, they do not leave their belonging to the fourfold. I mean, the image that replaces consciousness is the real, temporary, as any desire to do no harm here, to stand, the mind a bishop, pine waiting for fire, local to this coast, native to the phenomenal world. Today, halfway back, I stopped at the old ranch pond, its shore scored by sedge. I looked. It was still light out. An elk stepped forward from the grass into the image of an elk and drank from my mouth clear water. Thank you. <laughs>